You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. It is that time, that time of the week, where we bring to you yet another exciting episode of Murph and Morgan on the Loose. Oh, no, that's, that's a different episode we're going to do. It's called Game of Crimes, episode 133. 133. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm tickled to death that we're at 133 and I'm looking forward to us hitting 233. 233. 233. Sounds like a bingo game. You know, B5. Anyway, hey guys, welcome back to Game of Crimes. I'm here literally with my partner in crime. I'm Morgan and you are, who are you again? Hey everybody, it's Murph. Murph, Murph the Smurf. He's blue because he's sad because... He's having to wear long pants today. That's why Murph the Smurf is blue. It's just oh, you you don't expect to do that in Florida, you know. It's it's, no, short, it's you just put your shorts on. That's where you go. It's sixty degrees. If it was sixty degrees here, Murph, I'd be in short sleeves and shorts, and uh, you know, some nice shoes. And outside, I can't believe you have wussed out to the point of where now it's sixty degrees. You have to have pants on. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Y'all say a prayer for me. <laughs> say y'all say a prayer while you're saying a prayer head on over to apple and spotify hit those five stars it really helps out a lot we really appreciate it guys and in fact on spotify you can leave comments on each episode so we encourage you to do that as well head on over to our website gameofcrimespodcast.com for everything we've got our book list there our merch uh and follow us on that thing they call social media at game of crimes on twitter game of crimes podcast on facebook and the instagram but i'm telling you where you gotta be and we just recorded a fun episode for you can't make this shit up and we we, we tried to do some funny stuff, but we did some serious stuff this time. And there was some stuff on there, Murph, you truly could not make up. You just got to listen to the one story. I mean, my one story that still sticks with me is the woman from Mexico who was raped. And oh, is that find out what, what the court said and what they did to her after mm-hmm. she defended herself. It's outrageous. It just, you know, a lot of the things we talk about, some of that time we're just venting a little bit. You know, we get more into our personal opinions on the Patreon episodes, but uh, we cover some things that we don't cover on here, and it's just outrageous the things that go on. Well, let me tell you what's outrageous, too, and you'll hear us do it a little bit, and I'm just going to plant a stake in the ground here. We had Ken Mead on, retired from Las Vegas Metro PD. Now he's working at Homeland Security. We can announce that. But I was on Twitter or X and listening to all of these, quote, experts talk about they know about the Las Vegas shooting. They know it was a machine gun. They know this. They know that. You guys don't know jack squat. You know, <laughs> the, the only person that knows, the person that was there like that, and the only interview he's given was Ken Mead. So uh, for all of you self-professed uh, experts on what happened out in Las Vegas, I encourage you uh, to go listen to the show. And that includes, unfortunately, some people who are throwing their credentials around on Twitter that I'm a military type and I'm a special operator and I know all the stuff. And that was definitely a machine gun. And they know exactly what type of machine gun it was, you know, and they have all the facts wrong. So, folks, get your facts straight. Just go listen to episode right 131. Um, yeah. uh, I can't believe, I'm sorry, Murph, that's my quick rant here again, too. It just ticks me off when I see people like that representing that they know the facts when they actually don't. And then the one person who has the facts, well, yeah, he's just saying that. It's government. It's a conspiracy theory. It's false flag. Tired of hearing that. <laughs> you know what? And that's what makes Game of Crime so special. 
it's not Morgan and Murph going out and talking to people and then coming back and telling you what they said. We bring people in that actually participated, that lived through this. Ken Mead was the lead investigator. I mean, you've got hundreds of cops out there doing things. It's all got to come to one person to organize and, and control this chaos. And that was Ken Mead. Nobody knows more about this case than him. What, What's the incentive for him to cover up? He's now retired from Vegas PD. If there was a cover up, don't you think he can make a TV series or a book and make a buttload of money? You know, it's just, it's, uh, it's conspiracy theories just gone amok, you know? <laughs> and it's not just this. It's just about anything that happens in our world now. There's conspiracy theories out there about everything. Uh, well, I, I, it's outrageous. Yeah, last point here, we'll move on. But the people who repeat rumor as fact, well, I know it for a fact. How do you know it for a fact? Do you have access to the case files? Were you there? Did you see? We went through all of that with him on the pictures. Not a Now, it was a bump stock. And how yep. fast the bump stock could cycle and do that made it sound like a machine gun. But there was not a second shooter. Girlfriend was not involved in any way, shape, or form. Right. They still don't know a motive. You know, so, but all of those things got dealt with in episode 131. So, last point here if, you, if you're out there thinking that you're a self proclaimed expert on the Las Vegas shooting, please listen to episode 131 and ye shall be saved. The, the light go. will come down and shine upon you and you will have your shit together. There you go. I mean, it's in depth, it's, it's, it's a four part interview, it's almost four hours. And then, yeah. So again, right from the horse, you want it from the horse's mouth. That's the way to do it. Anyway, that's why we do that on Patreon too. We were actually able to go into depth on that, on those cases. We've got a uh, case of the month coming up, uh, 911, what's your emergency, our narcometer. Murph may be, almost be out of, this, uh, out of the doghouse with the narcometer. So uh, it's been a long process of rehabilitation for Murph, uh, frequent checks. And he's got to wear an ankle bracelet, you know, in case he gets near a bad movie again, it goes off and shocks him. We don't let him touch the button anymore. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, and our, our mafia queen has, uh, thrown another wrench in this thing. I'm not sure that I'll ever get off probation now. Well, you will if you get a hold of her. So, yeah, you know, it's it's Griselda. It's the real investigator from uh, who looked into Griselda Blanco. The, oh, that, the, that I'm not too worried about. Yeah. I think it's Well, if you get that, dude, you're off the hook. Right. But uh, from now on, we have a vetting committee of any movies you submit for review. I have to go through a three-step <laughs> process. <laughs> anyway. Don't watch Miami Vice. If you haven't watched it, don't waste your time. Don't watch it. Yeah, the, the movie, yeah. So, but that's, how do you find all this hilarity? Go to patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes. All of that hilarity is there, guys. Come on over and join us. And also, hey, look, we're just talking about our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just go to Facebook.com, type in Game of Crimes fans, close group, just join the fun, join the hilarity, see what's going on, um, just answer a couple questions. And we, this is, by the way, we get, we've found guests. Uh, we've been we've been actually been incentivized to go find guests. Somebody said, "Hey, get this person." We go mm -hmm. get them. You know, we talk about this story. We talk about this story. Uh, stuff that we use for our small town police blotter. You can't make this shit up. A lot of that stuff comes from you, our loyal listeners, our players in the Game of Crimes fan page, right, Murph? Absolutely, and and in fact, uh, not the episode we're getting ready to introduce now, but the next two episodes were recommended by. Uh, listeners here. One was, and we'll give them a shout out, Tracy Jacobs, uh, and I'm not going to name the the name of the guest yet. You have to wait and see when they come out. And uh, after that, David Buchalter, who happens to be uh, our agent with uh, UTA Speakers Bureau for Javier and I. So we listen to you guys. You know, you, you throw us a challenge. We'll see what we can do. Just like we're trying to get uh, the uh, lead, one of the lead investigators from the Griselda 
Blanco investigation after the Griselda series came out on Netflix. So you you speak, we listen. And even in that movie, Sofia Vargara, even with the makeup on, <laughs> trying to make her look bad, she still looked five times better than Griselda did. Oh my gosh, just go Google the pictures and take a look and you oh. decide for yourself. <laughs> okay. Oh. Hey. Before we get too far, though, remember, folks, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things uh, and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take this story seriously, but what, Murph? We never, never, never take ourselves serious. We have a lot of fun here. And one of the ways we have fun is we have a little special section we call Small Small Town Police Slaughter. Hey, well, now I've got some stories for you here. And they all have a common theme. They all involve masks. So, Masks, okay. Masks. M-A-S-K-S. Masks. So, December 1st, a Michigan man robbed a 7-Eleven store at Knife Point, surrendered to police uh, because he was wearing a ski mask, but realized it wasn't going to cut the trick. It wasn't going to do the job, I should say. It wasn't going to cut it. Uh, And one of the reasons it wasn't going to cut it, Murph, is that, you know, you go out and you wear a ski mask and stuff. You know, people are going to say, ah, you know, what? how tall was the guy? What he looked like? Well, this guy, it wouldn't have mattered. The guy they arrested, Damon Matthews, 19, uh-huh. is 7 foot 4 inches. <laughs> That's why he was in a 7-Eleven. Hey, I must be related. I'm 7-4, you're 7-Eleven. You know? That's a memorable robbery right there. <laughs> yeah, so according to cops, Matthew told his sister he had robbed the 7-Eleven, a mission that prompted her to advise him to surrender. Uh, and she concluded that her brother's connection to the robbery would be obvious to his height. This says, folks, doesn't matter race, doesn't matter anything. How many people do you know that are seven foot four? Call the police with their name. <laughs> that narrows the list of suspects. It do. <laughs> wow. And look what? His, his robbery charge came four days after he pleaded guilty to a larceny charge. So this happened in the little town of Bay City, Michigan, population 32,461. Salute. So uh, he'd originally been charged with home invasion, but that effort was dropped as part of a plea deal. And now he's in jail on a $75,000 uh, charge of armed robbery and felonious misuse of a mask. You know, if you can't consider, it's like it's like if you weigh 800 pounds and you go in there, what the guy look like? Or like robbing a bank dressed like a clown, which we've had people. He was dressed like a clown. Okay, that's enough. You know, I mean, to people like that, we say, go find another occupation because you're not going to do real well as being a criminal. Being stupid is going to hurt, folks. (laughs) (laughs) So now, Murph, in Louisiana, in a little town called Sulphur, Louisiana, population 21,809. Salute. It's about 20 miles east of the Texas border. They responded to a call about a suspicious man prowling around homes and peering into windows. When they did, they saw a suspect run away. He ignored police demands to stop. Uh, they found him hiding beneath the mattress, and beneath that mattress, he was wearing a black gorilla suit at the time, thinking that would disguise him. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you lift your master, mattress up, you expect to see a gorilla laying under there, right? And Mark, this is going to explain it all. He was charged with multiple offenses, including unauthorized entry of an inhabited dwelling, resisting a police officer with violence or force, wearing a mask or hood in public, and possession of meth. There you go. What do we say? Don't Kids, do don't meth. Kids, don't do meth. All right. Uh, 
Wow. So they asked the police, why do you think he was in the uh, gorilla suit? And they said, the only reason we could figure out was uh, he was on dope. He was on drugs. <laughs> That's what they said. They said, ask about it. A police spokesman said, the only reason Moran would have opted for the costume was the possibility of the drugs he was using. Uh, explains it all. All right. Now, Murph, who's one of the smartest people in history? Uh, Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, uh, think a theory of relativity. Speed of light. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Albert Einstein. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, you can tell this is not going to go well for Murph. Okay, Rocket. <laughs> you're no Albert you, Einstein. I told you we don't take ourselves serious here. That's right. Well, you're no Albert Einstein, and neither was this guy. So a suspect, still undetermined, robbed a Wells Fargo, which I'm fine with robbing Wells Fargo. I, I'll tell you my, I think I've told you my Wells Fargo story. So F Wells Fargo. So a uh, population 25,463. Salute. There in Venice, Venice, Florida, right? He, he left with an undisclosed amount of money and may stay customer who sought to follow him from the bank. Uh, he was wearing, what was he wearing? He was wearing an Albert Einstein mask. So the public's are, the, and the deputies are seeking the public's help in identifying the man who posed as the German physicist. During the post-Halloween heist, he was last fleeing in a red sedan driven by an accomplice. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> Stupid. You couldn't, get, you couldn't get speed of light. Come on, Albert Einstein. Dude, I'm telling you, Florida has made you soft. Living in Florida has made you soft. The next thing you know, I'll be doing meth. Look out. <laughs> all right. As they say, all right, all right. Okay, let's get into this episode because the nice thing about it is we spent a lot of time with this guest introducing him the first time. So there's no need to introduce him a lot. Uh, just right. uh, our buddy, Zach. Uh, if you can spell his last name and say it correctly three times in a row, uh, you win a prize as yet to be determined. But this is interesting, Murph, because you know we, we've we've been staying in touch with him, and some things have been happening. But very interesting because this—if you would have told me put into one case, DEA, Hamas, and Mossad—I would have mm -hmm. said I'm in. Damn, I'm in. Oh yeah, it was uh, not Hamas, but Hezbollah. I mean Hezbollah. Yeah. Well, that too. There's probably some Hamas people involved in it. As, as you'll find out at the beginning of the episode, uh, we're having a little conversation. They didn't know I was recording, but how do you how do you do a hillbilly twang with Hamas? Is it Hamas? <laughs> now, Zach is, uh, you know, this case started when I was still in special operations, but it was down in our, um, not secret sections, but we had a couple of enforcement groups down there, the 959 and 960 groups. Um, and then it con it continued to grow. So when, as Zach is telling us about this in this interview, this is the first in depth I've ever heard about this case, and I was I was shocked. And but I shouldn't be because I know DEA has long tentacles and will try things that other agencies want. But the fact that they were working with Mossad, you know, and I think I think that's one of the leading intelligence groups in the in the entire world. Uh, I was just real proud to hear what's going on, and, and you're going to be—I think you're really going to enjoy this this uh, interview with Rob. 
And I learned something, too. I learned the difference between a project and an operation because I called it Operation Cassandra, and it was actually Project Cassandra. So we get into finding what's the difference between the two. But there's only one way we're going to find out about this, Murph, and I have to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and hillbilly-friendly game of all, (laughs) the Game of Crimes? Absolutely, y'all. Now get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. (laughs) We're going to find about... Sorry, I can't do this with a straight face. We're going to find about find out about Project Cassandra. <laughs> Yens Hezbollah. Oh no, that's that's Pennsylvania. We don't we don't say Yens. Yens is straight Pittsburgh, huh? I thought it yeah, might be close enough to Morgantown. No, nah, we're we're still y'all. <laughs> Yens guys. <laughs> Well, see, I started recording because we were having too much fun, so you guys caught in on the first part of that. We're trying to decide if Iranian and terrorist names sound better in a West Virginia twang, like Abu-Dadal and... Uh, Dang toot, and that Hasberla, that group out there, you got to watch it. Hamas, is Hamas like hummus? What is that, what is that stuff there? That's fantastic. That's a nickname we use, Hamas. Hamas, Yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys may not recognize the voice, but you certainly recognize the inability of everybody to pronounce his last name correctly. We just call him Zach. And what does Zach call himself? Uh, Zach. Zach's fine. And, uh, and, your, and your real name? Tell no, me your real guys, name. Uh, Rob Zaharyashevitz. See, and it rhymes with Manashevitz, so Zaharyashevitz. So that's the only way I can remember, because I thought it was Zaharyashevsky, but uh, no, it's, it's not that. Common spelling. And, and, Common spelling. And yeah. Somebody that we've had on here, I think, more than once. Yeah, we actually did a Patreon episode with him. We did a follow-up um, on his case on guess what? By, and by, you know what? Let's do that real quick because guess what? Shocker of shockers. After Victor Boot was traded for Brittany Griner, mm-hmm. then the head of the Wagner Group, you know, who knew wine bottles exploded at 30,000 feet? I thought, that, I thought pressurized cabin would keep those things from just blowing up, but apparently they blew up. Well, there you Blew go. Blew him out yeah. of the air. Yeah, and, you know, I have uh, some pretty reliable sources that told me that uh, Victor was actually supposed to be on that plane and uh, was warned off in some way, shape, or form. No kidding. Yeah, can't promise you that's right, but I can tell you it's well-placed. It sounds believable, too. Well, yeah. your your conspiracy theories are far more credible than some of the other ones I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think I warned you guys a while ago, Saab would get traded for Fat Leonard, so – and. Uh, Alex yep. Bob's back in Venezuela. Well, and and here's the let's kind of close out on that loop real quick though. But the interesting part is, has Victor Boot come back in and got a leadership position in Wagner Group, or is he going to take that over? I haven't. I, I can tell you that he's uh, he's been um, very public. Uh, I, I I look at him much more these days as kind of a, a spokesman, or yep. as I like to call him, the chief propaganda officer. Um, He's, he's certainly made uh, some public pronouncements about the arms trade and Africa's right to arm. Uh, it kind of sounds like, you know, yesteryear. But um, I, I can't tell you – I couldn't tell you what his formal role in that, in that area is. Well, as, as we're catching up with Zach, look, if you want to go back, go back and listen to the episode we had with Zach. And Murph's going to tell me the episode number here in a minute. Number 19. Number 19. So listen to that because a lot of Rob's history and, and background is in that. We're not going to do that over again. 
but you know what we covered was Operation Relentless, basically the DEA operation to get Victor Boot. When everybody else said, "Hey, you know, it's he's tough to get," DEA goes, "Hold my beer," and <laughs> then right. uh, and then Victor Boot is uh, in custody. Which, by the way, here's the thing: I'm still laughing about. Well, I think it was you guys were in. Was it you were in Romania? Yes, sir. S- staged up. Yeah. Yes, sir. And what movie were you watching? The Lord of War with <laughs> Nicolas Cage as Yuri Orloff, you know, imitating Victor Boot. I can't believe you guys were watching that. Well, we watched it, and, it, and the best part is we watched it with Romanian subtitles. So it kind of brought the whole flavor home. <laughs> oh, man. Well, but you know what? It, but, but again, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. All of those things that we talked about, guess what? Victor Boot now is walking around as a free man. Yep. In fact, and, we, we brought um, – uh, Zach back here on December 26th uh, when we kind of took a, t- a Christmas break and we had him on one of our Patreon issues to give us an update. And that was after they had traded Victor for uh, uh, Griner. So this is third time on the show. You're the first person we've had on here three times. You're a three time. We've, we've two time people, but we've never three time people. So three Pete. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm honored or I'm worried about you boys. Times might be getting a little tough. Yeah, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, man. Nobody wants to come on the podcast anymore. No, no, no. There, trust me, there's always Derek Maltz. He's always good for great shows, man. I love it. That Pretty soon you're going to have me on to be talking about like what home projects I'm working on. Or... <laughs> It'll be like an episode of NPR. So, Zach, what are we working on today? Yeah, yeah. That's good stuff. But this is uh, – what we're going to talk about today is, is – uh, it's a story that you told us about previously that just really piqued our, our curiosity. We put it on the list. We know you got a million things going and we hate to keep bothering you, but it just no, we got don't. to the point where <laughs> I'm trying to be nice here. You know? We might bring, want to bring you back a fourth and fifth time. You never know. <laughs> but this one is just beyond belief. I, I, and I really knew nothing about this case in DEA. So I'm really excited to find all, find out about all the details. And I've got my laptop up here with a word document so I can record these names. Cause it, these are names I'm not familiar with anymore. So, no, welcome back, Zach. Nah, it, it's a pleasure to be back. And for so me, don't you know. just trying to pronounce all these. It's going to be like George Bush. You know, when Will Ferrell did that invitation of him on Saturday Night Live after the debate, <laughs> you know, doing all the invitation of all the world leaders. Well, there's, you know, you know, I can't remember all the names he was doing, but it was in that Texas twang, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Well, the, the sad thing is I understood everything he said. <laughs> No, man, get, getting back and talking to you guys is just like getting together with two old friends. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to be yeah. here with you. It's good to Thank see you, you, brother. Thank As you. they see, I'm actually looking at you because we're, we're online here. But uh, luckily, your your audience doesn't have to look at these three ugly mugs on camera together. So. <laughs> we all have faces for radio. Well, I don't know about you, but me, I got to go get a haircut Thursday. I don't know if you guys can see this. It's just like really long. So I got to go. Damn gotta, hippie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You see, you see him robbing that in, right, Zach? A little bit. You know, hair is singular and plural. So when I say I have to get a haircut, I mean plural, not singular. Murph. Like I got one hair here. Yeah, yeah but I don't, it doesn't take me a long time to go to a barbershop now. Oh, and Zach, you're going to love this too. We had Boyd Holbrook on to okay. start off uh, the year. Uh, <laughs> I know and we were doing this interview with Boyd and we're out talking about Boyd. But what were you doing to, you know, like imitate Murph? He hung out with him. He says, well, what I did, he did the entire both seasons, so he could look like Murph. He took a razor and he shaved a receding hairline into his head every single day. <laughs> Man, see, that's just hurtful, to be honest with you. <laughs> Even retell that story is just a little mean spirited, I think. Yeah, I tell you what, man. I, I drove down this past weekend to Miami to do some filming on another project. 
and I actually pulled up Boyd's interview on Game of Crimes and listened to both <laughs> both well, episodes. And we got to that point, and I'm just shaking my head down the road, and people are looking at me like, "What's wrong with that guy?" <laughs> well, you'll appreciate this too, Zach. We were talking about, hey, we've we've all got something in common on this podcast. One is, you know, obviously, you know, Narcos. You know, uh, I've got Steve and Javi on here. You know, and, and you were in it. I said, number two, we've all received training by DEA. He goes, yeah. I said, and. I was leading him down the path. I said, number three, we've all been told, don't go in the house. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of painful to listen to him relive that. No, it's like, it was that well, just told Murph, like, it was the toughest role of my life. I had to ugly myself up every day just to get in character. <laughs> hey, you should see him now, Zach. He's uh, he's preparing for a film where he's going to be a prisoner, you know, a, a convicted murderer on a hunger strike in a prison. Wow. He's, he's lost 37 pounds. He looks like he sent us a picture. He looks like skin and bones. Hell, I, I sent him what I sent him a care package. I said, you know, dude, just to eat some, you know. But yeah, he did. Oh, he dropped the weight. He looks so he, you know. And the sad part was is that when we had him on, the actor strike, you know, started, and then it wasn't completely uh, over yet. There were some exclusions for independent films, but so he started losing all of this weight, and then it was like he was put on hold. Well, he didn't want to put it on and take it off again, so he was maintaining weight. And you know what that reminded me of, guys? What's that? It reminded me I had to go get a. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna think how is this even relevant? I had to go get a colonoscopy, and I was all done <laughs> through the through the you know the the whole prep thing for two days, you know, four days. Uh -huh. And on day three and a half, they call me. They say, "Oh, our power's out. We have to reschedule you." I said, "No, <laughs> I'm not doing this again." <laughs> So I had to, I had to start it all over again like a half a day later. So eight days of that. So I, I feel I feel for uh, me and Boyd. We got you know we're bonding. We got something in common. Morgan, uh, Morgan, I appreciate you, Morgan, because now anybody that listens is going to refer to me having been on the colonoscopy episode. <laughs> That's going to be my new claim to fame. Hey, let me tell you, those folks who've been out there, and you know, if you're over fifty, everybody needs to go get one. There's your public right service now. announcement of the day. There's your PSA well, you, from me. You know what Morgan did when they called him and told him the power's out? He said, give me the tube. I'll shove it up there myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not going through this again. I don't care if the power's <laughs> out. Just Exactly. Anyway. Now Morgan's like hooked. He goes to the doctor like, Morgan, we just gave you one last month. We're not doing it again. Stop asking. Please, please. Come on, yeah. please. One, just one more. And, just one more. And as you can tell, Zach's my dealer, man. If I need to go get some pale pectate and some other stuff, I hit up my man, Zach. Zach, it. it's all about connections. <laughs> Come on, Zach. Man, don't do this to me like this. Uh, well, let's go, how about we get way into down a freaking rabbit hole here, man. <laughs> not sure. <laughs> not, this is not the um, the pitch you gave me. <laughs> Sorry, man. Bait and switch. Are you not familiar with Hollywood? Bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like I need a self help clinic. <sighs> well, well, let's so let's kind of rewind real quick. Hey, uh, just but as we get started, we don't want folks to go back and. We don't want to repeat everything we talked about, but just give everybody real quick, just the two minute overview, you know, of, of how you got into DEA, you know, and then lead us up into this operation here, Operation Cassandra. Yeah, well, look, I, I never, uh, I try not to miss an opportunity to give a shout out to my uncle Bobby, um, my godfather, Bobby Grant, career DEA agent, who was my father's roommate at Fordham, uh, greatest guy going. And um, so I, He's a hero to me growing up, so that's all I ever really wanted to do. Uh, so in 1998, I became an agent. I spent um, five years in New York learning the ropes from what uh, DEA affectionately calls the New York Mafia, a uh, place where you learn how to do a little bit of everything. And then uh, I was lucky enough in uh, 2003, I was selected to, to a, 
elite unit in DEA Special Operations Division called the Bilateral Investigations Unit. So very briefly, I'll just explain that um, the BIU was um, DEA's response to, to 9-11. It was built uh, built up in the shadow, in the ashes of the World Trade Center. And uh, the idea initially was uh, to, to go touch the untouchable. It was a kingpin unit. Um, but we, we quickly, with, with a string of early successes, we evolved into um, narco-terrorism and, and very, very high-level political corruption. So with that, you know, that's kind of the lead into why DEA would be engaged in these type of cases. Um, with building the, the BIU, they also built the um, uh, CINTOC, the Counter-Narcotics Terrorism Operations Center and Special Operations. So hand in hand, those two units were, were pretty well equipped to kind of go after anybody and everybody. Um, the CINTOC was more, uh, it was on the intelligence side. Uh, its job was to to liaise and coordinate with all the other three-letter acronyms, um, three-letter agencies in the USG and even foreign. Um, special, DEA Special Ops is an awesome place. There's there's representatives from you know every agency you can think of, including many foreign ones. I think we have Aussie counterparts and British counterparts, and there's even an NYPD rep. Um, so you know, with that, we uh, th- that's kind of how our targeting worked. We had a, a Unbelievable stable of informants providing us stuff, and we had a lot of support uh, from the broader community where we would get leads and corroborate our tips and, and kind of decide uh, who's who in the zoo and who needed to come off the playing field. You know, and as you're doing this, too, the other thing we want to kind of set the stage for, too, is um, we're going to be talking about some terrorist groups, um, uh, Hezbollah primarily, but, you know, we kind of set the stage, too, by realizing that. Um, after the revolution, it was stated that Hezbollah was Iran's most successful export. You know, Iran is uh, the primary proxy. I mean, Hezbollah and Hamas are proxies for Iran, and they support them along with the Houthi rebels. So you guys are seeing that play out now in Israel and the attacks going on in the Red Sea and everything else. So what Zach's talking about, you know, th- these things have long tentacles. This this isn't just something that you know, popped up one day. Iran has been involved in this since basically the day of the revolution, and Hezbollah gets a lot of support and a lot of uh, uh, training and funding from yeah, Iran. If you, if you can, Zach, just uh, briefly uh, describe for our listeners what the authority is that allows DEA to go after these foreigners like this. Uh, so, there's two main laws that uh, that we used. Originally, our group was called the Nine Five Nine Group. There's a law, 21 United States Code, Section 959, which is basically part of our drug laws. And, and in a nutshell, it said, more or less, um, if you're trafficking uh, in drugs and narcotics anywhere in the world with the knowledge or intent that some portion of that is ultimately going to the United States, uh, you can be tried in a U.S. court of law. And um, it got a little funky because the way it's written, it's either in Washington, D.C. or where you first land in the country. The reason being there's no act in the United States to give venue. So we worked with Southern District of New York and we were constantly having to, uh, they don't have an international airport there, believe it or not. You know, John F. Kennedy's in, in, in um, the, Eastern. the Eastern District of New York. LaGuardia is the Eastern District of New York. So uh, we had to really rough it and get private planes um, chartered, oh, chartered oh, flights into heart, Westchester. And, my heart bleeds for you. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Uh, Appreciate that sacrifice. Well, somehow we muddled through, Murph. Um, <laughs> and then uh, in 2006, um, I believe it was Congressman Hyde sponsored a bill 
the narco-terrorism statute, which is 21 USC 960A, um, which very, very similar. Uh, it basically says if you are trafficking narcotics and giving pecuniary, you know, financial support to a State Department listed terrorist organization or a group that acts like a terrorist organization and actually have to be listed. Um, same deal. You can be tried in a U.S. court of law. The only difference between the two laws, the uh, they're very draconian. 959 was a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence, uh, and 960A was actually a 20-year minimum mandatory sentence. So massive sword to hold over someone's head when you got them on it. Um, you know, quick side note. I know, you know, you, you always like the irony, Murph. Uh, we, uh, at one point, I, I proposed uh, trying to prosecute a Mexican cartel under 960A. I, with the basic theory being, you, you know, at, at that time, I don't know if you remember the news reports, at that time, there was an incident down in Mexico where one of the cartels had uh, cut off the heads of some of its uh, victims and literally rolled them across the dance floor in a disco. With people there, I mean, and so my thought was, you know, you're chopping off heads, rolling them across the dance floor. It seems to me you're acting like a terrorist organization. You know, you should be eligible. And I got told that the State Department would never tolerate uh, tolerate that, that we couldn't do anything um, that anything that using the word terrorism in Mexico would hurt tourism. So therefore, we were not allowed to go after the cartels that way. You know, uh, and see that you bring up something too, Zach. Um, the State Department is the entity ultimately responsible for designating, specially designated nationals, foreign terrorist organizations, um, and Hezbollah is a designated terrorist organization. Back even since 1997, it's been it's been adjudicated that way by many countries. But you bring up a really interesting point. For years. I know, and they've tried to just reintroduce it into Congress recently. I can't, it was called the Narcos Act. I think Lindsey Graham may have done it, but some other folks. But, you know, what you're talking about, Sinaloa acts just like a terrorist group. What's the difference between Sinaloa and, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS? They're involved in the same things. They're doing the same things. They're, they're committing. a. And in fact, you know, people go, oh, look at the terrorists just beheaded somebody. How many people are beheaded by Sinaloa or, uh, you know, uh, Jalisco New Generation, you know, or all the other people down there in Mexico? There is very little difference between a Mexican cartel and a foreign terrorist organization. Well, look at look at, uh, you know, the cocaine trade. The FARC became the biggest cocaine suppliers in Colombia, mm -hmm. and they were supplying all the Mexican cartels directly. I mean, they're literally meeting. Cutting deals for 5,000, 10,000 kilos at a time. Partnerships of some form. And FARC's a terrorist organization and the others aren't. And, you know, when we get into it, the funny thing, what I find really ironic is when it comes to the drug trade, um, all, all, the, all the groups that get involved, it seems like they go through the exact same evolution. And I think we're going to, when we start touching on Hezbollah, I think you're going to see that a little bit too. They start possibly with some cause, maybe it's misguided, but a cause of some sort, whether it's political or religious, and they're looking for a way to to uh, fight that cause and to fund their fight. Usually those groups are, you know, fairly heavily armed and control some territory that may hold some value. And often the value it holds is through transportation routes, whether it's legitimate goods or, or black market goods. So you take the drug trade, these groups will, will have some control over a territory that drug traffickers need to operate in, so they start to tax them. And 
after a while, the money's so good and they really start to see how these drug traffickers are operating to be able to properly tax them. And they say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of money to be made there. Why are we just taxing them? We're just going to take over the trade in our area. And that's exactly what the FARC did. And originally, they just taxed the cocaleros, the cocaine growers. And, uh, you know, every kilo you put out, you got to give us X dollars. And they looked at the money and they said, new rules. We own everything and we will pay you by the kilo that you actually delivered to us. Uh, by the way, here's what you're allowed to charge us. And they ultimately become, you know, the, the big traffickers. Well, I think think you could see the exact same evolution, in my opinion, with Hezbollah. They uh, they got they're into a lot of vices. There's a massive uh, Lebanese diaspora throughout the world from all the years of, of war in Lebanon. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And most of their folks end up, uh, you know, very, very industrious businessmen, and they end up in all the tax-free zones throughout the world, which all the money laundering seems to hit pipelines. And uh, as a result, you know, they ended up in, in the money laundering game. So with folks all over the world, you know, if you look at all the traditional groups that have become the top money launders, uh, or originally bankers, you know, those are the folks that have basically family ties all over the world and can operate in a Hawala type network where they have to, where it's all just on trust. And from there, once you're laundering everybody's money, you end up, you know, with the ends to get into the actual trade that these the, the nefarious folks are involved in. You know, and let's put a point on this, though, too, because these terrorist groups are committing the types of crimes that if a regular individual committed in the same country, they'd face a death penalty for under Islamic law. You know, so it's kind of a it's a it's an irony when you look at like with uh, the Taliban, the amount of heroin, you know, and, and the opium poppies that they were producing, you know, and harvesting. So it's uh, again, it's one of those, um, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. Well, so, it just it, it supports the, the concept that we all know is true. Money speaks louder than words. You know, don't yep. do as don't do as I say. Don't do as I do. Do as I say. Yeah, all laws become pretty malleable when there's a profit to be made, right, Murph? Oh, absolutely. And when the outcome is to arm, you know, is to like you say, we were saying Zach earlier. These folks are heavily armed. That doesn't come cheap. You know, that comes through people like Victor Boot or other stuff. You got to buy these things, and that takes money. And one of the easiest ways to generate money is through what? The illicit drug trade. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, what you'll see with Hezbollah, especially when we talk about it, is, uh, you know, it, it's not like that was the only vice they were in. That was just a natural offshoot. Black market oil, uh, chemicals, arms. I mean, anything really where you can make a buck, right? Uh, and I think I think when you really, really saw the spread into a lot of these vices and not just 
initially money laundering, but really getting into all these trades is when, you know, I, I think at one point our sanctions were, were working to some degree and a lot of funding dried up from Iran and, uh, you know, Hezbollah had to find other ways to, to be able to support itself because it, they were financially, they were being hurt. So they became much more self-sufficient. How do you do that? You get into the black market trade. Yeah. And you know, one of the things after living in Loudoun County, one of the things if you go back to Zach's episode is we found out too, we found out where you were on 9-11, which was right there in New York. Um, I was in Loudoun County, you know, I was in DC that day um, and, and saw the Pentagon, you know, saw those things. But what happened afterwards, I think kind of is the genesis for some of this, but they started realizing there were a lot of quote, Islamic relief organizations that were nothing but funneling money back over to Hamas, Hezbollah. In fact, one of the largest terrorism financing cases still in the United States today, it's called the Holy Land Foundation. It was a case, I think, from 2005. And all of that information is out there. They've got all these unindicted co-conspirators, but it's huge, the number of people that are involved in this and the amount of money. And then when I was doing my work down at Justice on information sharing, I learned from the ATF that one of the ways that they were raising money in the United States, too, was through cigarette tax stamp counterfeiting. They would get a pack of cigarettes without the tax stamp on it. They put the tax stamp on it and they collect because the amount of tax on a pack of cigarettes was pretty significant. And then that was hard currency they could send back. So like to your point, they were finding any way they could to finance it. So we're kind of setting the stage here. So financing, you know, again, that's one of the three legs of the stool, right? You have to have to time anonymity support if you want to do terrorist operations. But the thing that runs us, right, money is the uh, oil that, you know, lubricates the gears that makes this whole thing work without it. They're nothing but a group of, you know, people sitting in the desert somewhere with nowhere to go. Well, and the next evolution is crypto, right? Now, that's what you're seeing now. They've, you know, they constantly evolve. They're survivors. They need to continue their operations in their minds. So uh, now I think that that's what you're seeing. And a lot of that's coming out about Hamas and how they're able to fund themselves, um, especially through the help of good friends like Cutter. Um, but you, you see all these guys have been involved in crypto and you see a lot of the same charitable uh, fundraising. It's basically, you basically see a lot of small individual wallets that are collecting funds. But if you were able to blockchain those out and track them, they all pipe into one big central charity. And then and we you know, say look, charitable organizations with air quotes around them. Yeah, and, and right. look, the sad part for you know for there, there's a lot of worthy cause out there and people that need it gets commingled. So how do you, you know, I think that's the challenge for a lot of folks trying to enforce this is how do you target. <laughs> a charity and kind of separate out the good from the bad. It's, it's so it, it, look, it's like human shields, right? Is it really that different? It's human shields from a, from a, you know, maybe a metaphysical standpoint, but you know, how do you, uh, you, you hold the charity up in front of yourself and say, good for you. You know what you take, you take the world's hunger basket mm -hmm. and uh, take that away and see how your stance in the world is. So it, it, those are the challenges that we face. Well, yep. it's just like what they're doing right over now in Gaza. I mean, the, a lot of relief agencies are delivering supplies, but guess who's taking them all? Yeah. It goes goes right back to Hamas, you know? So so let's set the stage for this. So um, this is called Operation Cassandra. It's, it's something we touched on a little bit before. But, I mean, this involves a lot of things, too. I'll, I'll throw it out there, and then you help connect the dots together. I mean, a lot of this involves Iran, <laughs> even some even some tangents over to Venezuela, Um you know, it involves intelligence agencies. But the interesting thing, I pulled up the DEA press release, basically, when they talked about this. There's one country missing from this that I'm shocked about. What's what that? country do you think is missing from the uh, press release that was involved in this? 
Iran. No, no, but in terms of a cooperating country, one that was involved. There's no mention of the word Israel in this. That's interesting. Yeah, they talk about, uh, I just pulled it up. They talked about Project Cassandra. Um, uh, and um, they talk about all the people who were involved. But I just did a keyword search uh, for Israel. And I went through a couple things. Nothing. They talk about DEA Philadelphia, uh, DEA offices in Europe, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, FinCEN, Treasury Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is OFAC, uh, Europol, and Eurojust, but no mention of Israel. Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, a good friend, Udi Levy, who's a proud Israeli war horse um, and is one of the primary characters in a book we were discussing before. Uh, it's called Harpoon, which was the Israeli operation targeting terror funding. Um, and they kind of do the opposite. They gave a, a some very nice uh, praise to Cassandra and to the support of the the U.S. I, I think part of that might be, I think, I think the relationship, um, if you read along with that book and, and buy into the, the theories, I think the relationship was a little more informal with Israel, and it's because uh, they didn't get too far with a lot of other agencies, and they hit it off pretty well with DEA, and really um, bought into to what we were doing. And and with guys like Udi, they they decided that the way to cripple uh, these networks was to take away their funding. And I think in, in many instances, we've seen that proven right. Uh, it's it's hard to constantly be taking their arms away, but if they can't buy them in the first place, yeah, yep. then you know it gets a little different. So. Um, yeah, because anytime you mention Hezbollah, it certainly gives a gives a good layout. Yeah, because I was going to say, anytime you mention Hezbollah, there has to be uh, there has to be a touch point with Israel somewhere, Mossad, even internally, Shin Bet, you know, folks like that. They're dealing with these folks every single day. You know, Israel's the main target for a lot of these terrorist organizations in the Middle East. But let, let's get into Cassandra. So, um, let's talk about what the purpose of Cassandra was and how it came into being. Uh, yeah, well, you know, not to, to bore with too many details, but y- you mentioned Operation Cassandra. It was actually Project Cassandra, which well, may project. not sound like a big a big deal, but just for structurally, uh, DEA has cases, operations, then ultimately at times projects. And so the way it works is Special Operations Division um, creates quote-unquote operations, gives operation names, which are blankets to connect all the related cases in the world. So you could have you know, a group in New York and a group in Miami, and they're both working a case with a source uh, organization in Colombia, and they have no idea that they're targeting the same folks downrange, that the same folks downrange are ultimately supplying each of their domestic groups. And that's that was uh, one of the jobs of Special Operations Division. They would coordinate all these cases, get all the agents together, kind of um, unify all the intelligence coming in, and you know, and and you know, create much stronger operations in that way. And so um, there are times when these operations are actually crossing over into other operations. You have a Mexico-focused operation and a Colombia-focused operation. Don't even realize, you know, that there's massive tentacles to each. Um, And that a lot of the same people are getting targeted, but the selectors aren't hitting, meaning, well, let's say one, one operation is very focused on telecommunications and so it's it's coordinating all the phones that are hitting in the world. But another operation is focused on um, undercover money pickups and some banking or just straight 
uh, human intelligence and coordinating all the human intelligence. And so maybe for a while, you know, they're not crossing over because they're, they're drawing from two different um, types of intelligence. And then next thing you know, people connect the dots and say, holy cow, all these operations are the same. Then you create a project to coordinate it all. Well, that's what you saw in Cassandra. You had uh, all these different instances where, um, let's not even say Hezbollah, let's just say Lebanese uh, trafficking networks were, were uh, appearing. And I, I point that out on purpose. That became one of the big fights, internal fights with DEA under uh, Cassandra was, where do you draw the line between some Lebanese drug traffickers and Hezbollah-affiliated drug trafficking groups? You know, there are times, so I'll give the example of the north coast of Colombia. Uh, as Murph could tell you from his time down there, it's still Wild West. There's a uh, semi-autonomous region that is still largely controlled by um, indigenous populations down there in Colombia on the north coast. Uh, area between, say, Santa Marta, Colombia, uh, which is all in the Caribbean, and, and Venezuela. Uh, and there's a ton of drug trafficking out there, very, you know, very adept um, uh, money laundering networks and maritime Colombian trading organizations. There's also a huge, uh, that's probably the largest Lebanese diaspora, Lebanese Syrian diaspora in Colombia is on that North Coast region. You'll see a lot of names that sound very Middle Eastern. You'll have a lot of groups that are, you know, uh, Middle Eastern bloodlines. Um, so does that in and of itself make them eligible to be run under a Hezbollah operation? Well, no. I mean, there's a lot of groups there that are just traditional Colombian trafficking families that happen to have uh, Lebanese bloodlines. Um, and before, you know, before we get into when, when we see really getting involved. One interesting crossover from the last time or the first time I was with you guys is, is talking about Victor Boot. Uh, the Israeli, the last Israeli Hezbollah war, major one, I believe was 2006. And uh, there was a report in the Guardian that came out uh, after the war, during the war, that in the opening days, in the opening salvos, Victor Boot was spotted in Beirut and the Mossad or Israel tried to take him out. They, they, they dropped a, a hotel trying to take them out. Um, wow. And so, you know. Anything you worth doing level, is worth overdoing. To everything. What's that? I said any worth, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. You want to take out a guy, just take out the whole damn building. <laughs> and look, I can't promise you that stories care. I mean, I think the, it's a pretty respectable. It doesn't matter. It sounds good, though. It sounds, yeah. it sounds legit, too, over yeah. there. And listen, when we first started targeting Victor Boot, it came from a fart case. I think we talked about that last time. It came from a fart case in Columbia. The Colombian... Authorities, boot, we were had a manhunt for for a guy we were looking for in Colombia that they called Boyaco, and um, who ironically was working for a FARC commander that was holding uh, uh, CIA contractors as hostage. And uh, the Colombian told us, you know, Boyaco was trying to do a surface air missile deal for the FARC with some guy named Ali Hijazi out of Venezuela who was working uh, using Victor Boot Airlines out of Aruba. Well, Ali Hijazi was Muammar Gaddafi's uh, intelligence agent, reported, as best I can tell, pretty directly to Muammar, but he's a Libyan intelligence agent um, that Victor ran around with that had uh, strong ties to Hezbollah. So was he also, it all works together. Was he also tied in with some of the guys on Lockerbie, Pan Am 103? Uh, that I can't. 
I've, I've never seen anything to that effect. He was a ghost for me for a long time. And then finally some reports came out. He's a big aviation guy. Um, but, you know, in the, in the boot trial, we actually had evidence on Boot's laptop that he had somewhat recently done a meeting in the last year or two, a uh, some type of a communications deal to Libya, uh, high grade military communications equipment. Um, the Honorable Shira Shindlin decided that that evidence was um, uh, prejudicial and should be suppressed. Kind of ironic being being (laughs) there was somewhat of an entrapment defense. It seemed that that would be perfect evidence to defeat that type of defense, showing no, you're actually engaged in that trade. But so overwhelming evidence is prejudicial to the defense. Yeah, (laughs) I was unaware of. Every defense attorney in the world will claim that. There's a reason that judge was a laughing stock in the Southern District. I'll leave it. I'll leave it alone at that. God Uh, bless her. Should have been over in the Ninth Circus. There you go. There you go. That's an inside joke for you folks listening. Uh, the Ninth Circuit out of California is affectionately referred to as the Ninth Circuit because I think they have the highest rate of their rulings being overturned of any uh, district. They come up with some crazy stuff out there, that's for sure. Well, back to our regularly scheduled podcast with Zach. So. There we go. <laughs> way, way to rope it back in, Morgan. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that. You talk about a rabbit hole. That would be a rabbit hole. Yeah, we could we could spend all day there. So, uh, but it, it's as you're laying this out, though, too. It, that's very interesting because uh, most most a lot of the Hezbollah of uh, you know members are Lebanese, but not every Lebanese is a member of Hezbollah. I mean, it's kind of a logical contradiction or logical issue. People kind of conflate. Well, just because you're just because you're one doesn't mean you're the other. But most of this other group tends to be you know Lebanese, but how did you guys? So how did you guys work that? I, and I thanks for the clarification too, because I think yeah. sometimes unless you're doing the inside baseball, everybody thinks it's an operation. But to understand what the project means, that gives it a lot more clarity in terms of what the scope of this problem was. Well, yeah. So um, the best way I can describe it is in the uh, the latter half of the 2000s. So let's just say somewhere around 2007, 2008, um, we started really seeing more and more uh, bits of intelligence. Um, I, I won't even call it initially that Hezbollah or any other group was involved in drug trafficking. There was just some really weird blips showing up on the radars, right? So basically, we were, uh, so the best example I can give is um, we, uh, there's calls started coming across the Salas. The Sala is a, uh, is a listening post in, in Colombia. Or in this example in Colombia. So basically DEA and a lot of our really strong counterpart nations that, that fight the good fight with us, Colombia being the best example, um, we would help uh, provide infrastructure, create infrastructure for them to carry on the, the narco wars. What was the name of that listening post again? What'd it's you called call it? Sala. How's that so- spelled? S A L A, right, Murph? Yeah. S A L A. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's so Spanish it's, it's for room. Basically just, it's, it's what we would call a wire room here in the States. Okay. There's some, in many instances, and, you know, there was a huge funding mechanism in Colombia to fight the drug war called Plan Colombia that's been written about over and over. And a lot of that money went to help just helping build these guys' infrastructure. And so we had vetted units in Colombia, which means that we would actually polygraph them. Um, very trusted units. We help fund them. We might give them a stipend to their pay, try to keep them on the right side of uh, things because obviously in countries like that, you know, one of the, the goals of the cartel is to corrupt everyone and get them on their own payroll. And so we had, uh, and I think, I think from his time down there, Murphy, I think we'll back this up. 
look, there's corruption in these countries, but there's some unbelievable warriors that just absolutely my favorite partners, for lack of a better word, that I ever worked with were foreign counterparts. If you ask me the top 10 cops I ever worked with, I can tell you flat out uh, one that the one of the first one that comes to mind is was a was a vetted member out of Suriname, of all places. We had. You know, those are the guys I still consider brothers. And uh, and so anyway, we, we have these listening posts, these salas. And um, in a lot of countries like Colombia, there's actually units that DEA would help run. I mean, we would help guide them and we'd be providing uh, intelligence. Hey, these are numbers to target. These are groups to target. Here's what we're seeing. What are you seeing? And come up with joint targeting. And, and, and they would get judicial intercepts up that we could actually use in a U.S. court of law. They would be used down in Columbia, but we could actually use them in a U.S. court of law. And so we have these, these phones up. There's a phenomenal group, Group 10 in Miami, uh, tremendous agents who initiated Operation Titan, um, what we'll talk about in a minute. And that, that'll help explain the difference between operation and project. But um, what starts happening is they start getting these calls in Columbia and they would send the calls up north to us and say, hey, man, there's these calls. We have no idea what these are. They're speaking gibberish. We don't we don't understand what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, in one instance, this group in Miami, Group 10, uh, and I'm probably messing this story up a little, but. Um, well, nobody's ever heard it before, Zach. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you could mess it up. You could say Abu Nidal was in charge of everything. Hell, we wouldn't know. Uh, and I'll just stick to first names here, but phenomenal agent Sharon down there. Tremendous. Um, she's helping run this case. And, uh, this really is kind of the genesis of what we'll talk about in some of Cassandra. The agents send up the calls from, from Columbia and say, we have no idea what this is. And they're listening to the calls and there's a young, uh, Lebanese speaking agent in the group, former U S proud U S Marine, Rick, uh, phenomenal agent. And he hears them debating these calls and he's like, well, you know, that's, they're, those are Arabic. They're speaking in Arabic. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I speak Arabic. My family's Lebanese. I grew up in Lebanon. They're speaking Arabic. Really? And that's where the, that's one of the, one of the points of Genesis where we started realizing there was something weird going on. And when they translated the calls, they're drug calls. There, there was, there was, you know, uh, organizations moving, uh, speaking Arabic, moving drugs to the Middle East and elsewhere in the world. And um, that was part of the, that, that ended up right flat in the middle of Operation Titan. Now, Miami Group 10 was a phenomenal money laundering group that uh, just did some unbelievable um, money laundering cases. There's things called, I don't think we talked about this before, but they're called uh, AGEOs, Attorney General Exempted Operations, which is basically... A, uh, a license to break U.S. law. Uh, it literally it's called Attorney General because it's got to be approved all the way up to the Attorney General's office. There's a lot of really tight guidelines. Um, very late in my career, I get to help oversee some of these programs. And essentially, it's a blessing for DEA to go out and be able to launder money. And so the reason we do that is it, it's very hard to let even the smallest of drug shipments go through. Uh, and it's well, I, I, sh I should say it used to be very hard. It's now 100% impossible because of fentanyl. So let's say it's a 10 gram. You want to let just do a 10 gram sample go through so that in an undercover operation so that the drug trafficker thinks that the undercover is actually a righteous bad guy. 
So how would you do that? Well, you want to let a little bit of the drugs go through. If, it, if immediately he says, well, no, I don't want to actually traffic. It's like, well, what's wrong with you? I thought you were here to be a drug trafficker. Or if he, you know, if people immediately get arrested, you don't get to climb, climb up the ladder. Um, and so allowing drugs to go through is basically, you know, like no dice. Exactly. However, uh, under tight guidelines, we could let money go through. And so there's instances where DEA would pose as, as money launderers and literally receiving, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not even as much as a million dollars um, at a time and, and letting a portion go through so that the bad guys would say, well, they can't possibly be cops because they actually moved our money and we got it. But you do that to uncover the network, to find the phones you want to listen to, to find out, you know, again, who's who in the zoo. And, uh, and that's what Titan, you know, that's a lot of what Titan was built on. And next thing you know, they find themselves flat in the middle of a uh, Lebanese Hezbollah-affiliated uh, money laundering network. Um, one, of the, one of the big bosses um, that, that gets ID'd was uh, Ayman Juma. I think he ultimately became a CPOT, uh, Consolidated Priority Operational Target. Uh, basically, CPOT's a designation that DOJ would give to, you know, the very, very top tier drug traffickers. And Ayman Juma became one of them. Um, he was uh, Lebanese. Uh, ironically, he was Sunni, not Shia. And this goes back to where Murph, you were talking before about when there's money involved. You can put down all your wars. You can put down, you know, who hates who, but if there's a buck to be made, right? Yep, so, absolutely. I remember during, you know, during the Iraq war, the big, one of the big things I always talked about is as much as, you know, everybody hated it still cost the crusaders, the infidels, the Sunnis and the Shias hate each other more. And a lot of what was going on uh, there was, you know, those two sides just trying to kill each other off. Well, that was well, the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, that was, you got exactly. Iraq, which is majority Sunni, uh, Iran, which is majority Shia. And it all deals with the belief in the twelfth Imam, and you know, and which the Shias believe in, and the Sunnis don't. And believe it or not, that would be like the Baptists and the Methodists going to war. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's it's crazy, but we see plenty of instances in money laundering, especially which leads you into the drug trade with the Lebanese, where the religious um, shields will be put down. To conduct business. So you'd see Sunnis like Iman Juma dealing directly, partnering um, with Hezbollah. You'd see Lebanese Christians at times, um, you know, partnering, making deals, being part of uh, organizations or, or, or networks um, conducting business. And, you know, it doesn't just doesn't extend there. When we talked, we were out at the Southern California Gang Conference. We were talking to some investigators there. When it comes to money, the Aryan nations will work with anybody, with the Asian gangs, the black gangs, or whatever else. It's it, Out on the street, they might kill each other, but inside the walls there, it's about commerce, man. It's about moving dope, moving money. And like you say, um, money, you know, uh, politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, money and, you know, common goals make strange bedfellows, too, especially when you've got religious implications. Yeah, 100%. So, so they, they start making sense of these calls and, um, you know, ironically, I think at the time all they had, uh, they have some nicknames on the calls and maybe some of their own nicknames they were giving to, to associate with certain phone numbers being used. And literally at almost the exact same time, a, uh, try to be a little careful here and, and keep it somewhat anonymized, but basically 
um, a drug trafficker that doesn't really want to be a drug trafficker, it's getting extorted at, is a business owner in Central America walks into the U.S. Embassy, I think in Panama, and says, I need help. I'm being squeezed. I'm in the middle of this mess I don't want to be in. And um, guys of Middle Eastern origin, and he basically lays out the network that Miami Group 10 is listening to. But but he's got the real names. He's like, you know, they're calling somebody Flacco, like skinny guys. Like, well, Flacco is this guy and Gordo is this guy. And he basically lays out the network. And so they start to really uncover it and realize that they've got something going on. And through this guy's assistance, they're able to start um, an undercover money laundering operation. Um, and seizing... I mean, I've, Murph, you've seen the pictures on that trailer. I mean, some of the amounts of money. It's like a bed of money that an agent's sitting on for one picture. It, it's crazy. millions of dollars. At one point, these two knucklehead uh, female Colombian money launderers are supposed to deliver, five, I think, $5 million in Central America, and they actually accidentally deliver $20 million. They turn over the entire <laughs> load of money they're sitting on. They're supposed, supposed, supposed to give that much, so we had to make it look like a – uh, a real money laundering delivery that then gets hit, I think, in Spain by the Spanish. But basically, money gets it's supposed to go over to the, I think, ultimately to the Middle East. Wow. Um, and they Oof. have to make it look like uh, the money got taken off by foreign authorities. And so there's a way that we would do that where, you know, our guys that are actually moving it prove, can prove that they got it to a certain point. Like, hey, you said here we got it to the warehouse and the warehouse got hit. That's not on us. Somebody was watching your warehouse, right? Yeah. Um, and so that, that's really when things started to unfold and a lot of the, the dots started getting lit up. I I um, like this. I like this scam you guys are running on these guys because it's like fishing, right? It's reusable bait. You take 20 million, you throw it out there, you seize the 20 million, you bring it back. And now you got 20 million to use again. You never lose any money. You just keep, you know, using it over and over. I like this. This is, this has some potential. Yeah. It's not quite that easy, but (laughs) you know, (laughs) unfortunately most uh, major, major DEA scandals seem to revolve around these AGEOs as well. You know, they're the, they end up being, uh, uh, the most well-placed, highest-level informants. Look, the really smart ones realize if I give up a drug load or two, I make a few bucks and I probably get my head lopped off. If I get into the money laundering networks, I get paid a hell of a lot better. Things go on and on. And, you know, a problem with some of these AGEOs is they take on a life of their own. No one wants to see it end. Uh, some of the some of the, the VIG, call it, you know, we're supposed to be money launderers. So there's a, a, a VIG built in that would go to the money launderer. And again, under very special guidelines, some of that can be used um, towards uh, supporting operations. And uh, it just becomes its own lifeblood that people don't want to see going away. So we're going to have to start calling you. Well, go ahead, Murph. I was just going to say the reporting requirements are monumental to do all this. So it's, it's not as easy as, as Zach's making it sound here, but it is extremely productive. Well, it's kind of like the British MI6, you know, 007 was a license to kill. We're going to start calling you 0012 license to launder. So, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> well, some of us feel like they were truly given one, you know, no names, but Carlos Urzeri down in, years, and he's now up the river, right? Yep. Uh, because guys just, get a little blinded and end up on the wrong side of things. And that's what we say here on Game of Crimes is nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So he's well, so, where he belongs. So you've got, so, you know, so you've got all this money. And here, just to put it in perspective, we're not talking about a cashier's check. We're talking about $20 million in cash, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, cold, hard cash. And essentially, 
uh, it's essentially Mexican cartel money. Like all this is going on in Central America. Um, and so you have Colombian, Colombian Coke going up ultimately the Mexican cartels being handed off in Central America and the money's being handed off in Central America. And then in this instance, a lot of that has to be repatriated, some back down to Colombia, um, but a lot of it going overseas as well. And you had uh, Lebanese and you know Hezbollah-affiliated money laundering networks and drug trafficking networks that were conducting this. And there was drug shipments ultimately also going over to, to the Middle East as well. Uh, part of what came out of this, at about the same time, we really started to uncover the, the uh, Middle Eastern and especially Hezbollah connections in Venezuela. If you were to look at the, at the cabinet in Venezuela over the last you know, X number of years, you, you might think that you Googled the wrong thing and, and Googled a, a Middle Eastern country. Some of the names, you know, the former Venezuelan uh, vice president, Tarek El-Assami, very strong ties back over there. His, his family was part of the Ba'athist party, which was, you know, Saddam Hussein's party in, in Iraq, um, and very strong Hezbollah connections. Um, family members were Hezbollah uh, affiliates. Um, you really started to see Iran's influence in, in Venezuela. There was a famous flight, um, I think it was Conviasa Air, which was basically a direct flight going to Damascus every week from, from Venezuela with a couple hundred kilos on board of cocaine that was getting trafficked over there. Um, you saw through through the support of guys like Tarek, you saw um, Venezuelan passports being supplied to Iranian Revolutionary Guard and Hezbollah members, uh, which gave them not, that that's one of the most concerning parts of all. Now they had free reign to uh, travel throughout, you know, Central America. You just mentioned something. Let's tie in that because you, you mentioned something as we were getting ready to start this call, but um, there is somebody who is in a position of leadership now that was the oil minister and was dealing directly with Iran that a lot of people would recognize him as a pain in the ass right now and a world leader. <laughs> Well, I, I recognize him as indicted, but <laughs> <laughs> shout out to my old group who's holding the uh, the papers. But uh, it sounds to me like you're um, referring to Nicolas Maduro, the current and, president of Venezuela. And who would that? have thought Venezuela, an oil rich country, is uh, you know antagonistic towards the United States, would be involved in anything like this? Well, I, I think more ironically, it all brings us back to our religious, initial conversation on prisoner releases, because our fine administration was kind enough to release uh, Maduro's stepsons, known as the Narco Sobrinos, last year after only serving a couple years of their sentence on a, on a major operation my group ran um, in Central America. They were trying to move six or 700 kilos up to Central America. We caught them in a sting, captured them in Haiti, flew them here, and um, we just decided to release them. So, Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including... Our book list, any book written by our guests, will be listed there. 
In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.